Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. I'm your host, Jody Scardillo. This week, I welcome Kristen Smith for our episode. Kristen is the manager of wound care and hyperbarics at Northeast Georgia Health System in Gainesville, Georgia. She's going to be teaching everything we want to know about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Thanks so much for joining me, Kristen. I'm so excited to have you here today. One of the few, well, the many perks actually of being a podcast host is sometimes you get to pick topics that you really want to know about. And so this has long been something that I feel like I need to learn more about. And I had a patient recently who we were sending for a hyperbaric evaluation, and he had a lot of questions that I didn't really know the answers to. And I thought, well, maybe there are other WOC people around that need some information from an expert. So I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for having me. And so I always like to start off by having you tell me a little bit about your WOC nursing background and your past experiences and stuff like that. Sure. So I've been a nurse 25 years. I've been doing wound care for probably about 15 of those. I started out actually as a critical care nurse and then ended up in the hospital I worked at in Houston. I had an opening for a hyperbaric nurse. I had no idea what it was. I called and asked and I said, hey, what's hyperbarics? They got me one of the nurses. He was a really funny guy. And he goes, well... He explained it. He goes, it's a big chamber full of air. We help patients. He goes, but really during the day, we look at feet and butt all day. And I kind of laughed. And I said, well, I'd like to check it out. So I went down, liked the staff, liked what I saw, and ended up going and working in the wound care center at the hospital I worked at at the time. The doctor I worked for was fantastic and fabulous. I actually worked with Dr. Caroline Fife. She is a pioneer in wound care and hyperbarics and didn't realize how honored and blessed it was to be able to work with somebody like that. And so she was fantastic, taught me a lot, and it's where I actually developed my love for wound care and hyperbarics, and I've been in it ever since. I do have my certification in wound care. I'm recertifying right now in my hyperbarics as well. We have to recertify every so often, so I'm currently working through that. But it's been a great experience for the last 10 years. I've gone from being a staff nurse up to running the program there at the hospital I started at. Now, once I moved to Georgia, I was actually brought here to help this program here. And since I've been here, we've been revitalizing our hyperbaric program. Oh, nice. And what's the certification like for the hyperbaric, Kristen? Like, tell me a little bit about that. So when I started, there was really only one route to get it. And that was through the, what's called the NBDHMT, which is the National Board of Hyperbaric Medical Technology. Um, it was a very technical degree. And that's where they would go and get their CHT certified hyperbaric technologist certification and they had a CHRN, which is a certified hyperbaric RN. So very technical degree. You take a 40-hour course in hyperbarics teaching you about gas walls and dive medicine, what happens to the body when it's under pressure, safety. So you take a very technical 40-hour course and then you can take this test. And so recently in the last few years, the American Board of Wound Healing has added a certified hyperbaric specialist. And so you can do two tracks of it as an RN, which is nice because you can add your wound care and your hyperbarics to it, where until just recently, it's been very separated 
with hyperbarics versus wound care and the certification side of it. So I actually had started with a CHR and I'm now actually going through my track with the American Board of Wound Healing to go that route with the certified hyperbaric specialist. And so kind of wanted to take that track a little different just based on how certification boards look at different certifications and the the American Board of Wound Healing also certifies the MDs in different areas and so has a little more robust plan behind it. With the CHRN was not the easiest of tests either because, again, you have to know your dive medicine and you have to understand your gas balls. And so, again, it's a very technical test. Where in nursing, you do a lot of that nursing theory and that, and this was a very technical base. It was very different test taking. Definitely for a nurse, it's not used to taking more of a technical test. Right, right. Interesting. So a little bit more scientific and less nursing focus, it sounds like. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we should really start by just in case there are people listening that don't really know what hyperbaric is, maybe you could just define what that is. So the easiest way that we describe it, how I learned it initially as well, is it's oxygen under pressure. And so the best way to describe what we do is we take oxygen and we compress it and we make everything really small inside your body. So all the free airspace gets really small and the oxygen gets down to those little bitty vessels that you can't get to normally with general interventions. And so it allows that angiogenesis to occur at that microvascular level that we normally can't get to. And so as everything gets smaller, again, it allows that oxygen to go and it, it creates the free radicals in there. It has that, with some indications, it has that antimicrobial effect. It works antibiotics as well to get all of that down to those little bitty vessels. So we're able to get down to the little pieces of vessel, especially in those diabetics that they can't get blood flow to. We can actually get down there. It helps open those vessels back up and get that blood flow to reach back to those areas. It's oxygen under pressure is the best way to describe it. Okay. And that makes sense that it opens up those little vessels with the pressure then, right? Yes. So if a patient or a person is being considered for that therapy, is there like a standard evaluation process or how does that all go? Like if somebody comes to your wound center? We do follow very strict guidelines from the Underwater Hyperbaric Medical Society and CMS, um, Medicare And so CMS tells us what indications after we send all the literature and the data to CMS and say, we see that hyperbarics works to heal this or work for this indication. We would like coverage for it. They determine if they're going to coverage for it. We have 16 major indications that is covered for hyperbarics. And so to then qualify for it, you have to meet all the criteria that goes with it. So for like a diabetic foot wound, you have to be minimum a Wagner grade three. You've had 30 days of conservative treatment. We've opened up the vessels with vascular. We've done all the other medical pieces and we're still not healing. So now we can go to hyperbarics. You know, we treat radiation injuries, so late effects of radiation. So patients that have had radiation for cancer, we can't see those wounds, but they come back later. And so a lot of them, like people that have had prostate cancer, rectal cancer, and they've had radiation. And 15 years later, all of a sudden, they're starting to have effects from that radiation and they might begin to have bleeding. That's how we know that there's been an injury to that tissue. And so, again, once we are able to determine, yes, you have radiation, you have radiation at this point, and then we qualify you for hyperbarics. And so they have to go through a qualification process and they have to meet the criteria before you can go in. Hospitals that take Medicare as a payment, so the basically the majority of the hospitals and they do Medicare for payment, have to follow the 16 indications. They can't really deviate. There are private paid chambers that will do some of the off-label treatments 
for hyperbarics. There are people that do hyperbarics for autism, strokes. None of that has a lot of evidence behind it for long term what it does. And that's the problem of why we can't get coverage for it is there's not any long term evidence that it works. For the last probably now, let's say a good 10 years at least, we've been working on trying to get an indication for traumatic brain injuries. Started to see after the soldiers were coming back from Iraq, they had these traumatic brain injuries. We see that there is some effect. We just don't know long term how long that hyperbarics works. So we can treat you. We start to see that there's improvement tentative wise, but we don't know because trying to get see what happens now, five, 10, 15 years later, is it still working? That's why it's hard to get that coverage and even to get studies funded for it because how long do you keep these patients in the study to see the, the effect of what? Right. But if you have the TBI, it's nice to have that option, maybe if it's going to help you, right? Absolutely. So they do allow some off-label in Medicare hospitals, depending upon the situation. And, and I've actually treated a couple of patients with TBIs. And yes, there is some that I can tell for sure short-term effects. You do start to see it. I see the patient may come in and maybe they don't have good speech and vocabulary. And by the end of the treatments, they are talking or they're using better words. So we see that there is an effect to it. But again, knowing that long-term effect is where it's where we have a problem getting the medical world to see that it needs to be a covered indication. Right. Wow. That's something. So what's the course of therapy for the average patient, maybe with like a neuropathic ulcer who's diabetic or the common type of patient problems you see in your wound care center? Is there like a standard course of therapy and how long is that? And us about that a little. We definitely have utilization reviews on how long they should be treated. We don't just want to do it until the end of time. We want to make sure they're meeting criteria and they're healing. So like a diabetic foot wound, we'll start out with 30 to 40 treatments. You come five days a week to the hyperbaric center and your treatment lasts 110 minutes. So you're actually at pressure for 90 minutes. And then between the time of pressurization and depressurization, your total time is, you're roughly there about two hours, but 110 minutes of time inside of the hyperbaric chamber. And after 30 treatments, we do another review on that and we review the wound. Are we making progress? Is it getting smaller? Are we seeing healing or are we not? Is the patient still doing the right things? Obviously, with our diabetic patients, the one thing we are going to see is if they're not offloading like they need to, then we're not going to see healing even with hyperbarics because it will continue to stay open. With our patients, such as our radiation patients, again, that's generally 40 to 50 treatments, up to 60 treatments. But what we start to look at halfway through is, did their bleeding start to resolve? Is there less pain? Because we have to have something that tells us that we're making improvements. So every of our indications has a standard that we have to meet. And at certain points, we have to do what's called a utilization review. We actually have a book that's sent out every few years from the UHMS that comes out and it's kind of like the hyperbaric Bible. And it gives us all the indications. It has all of the literature in there. And then it talks about the utilization reviews. So you should do this treatment anywhere from 30 to 40 treatments. But at 15 treatments, you need to go ahead and reassess and see if you're making progress. If not, then we're going to stop. If we are making progress, we're going to keep going. If it's 40 treatments, we see that we've made good progress, but we're still not quite there. Then we can ask for more. We can say, you know, we do know that if we get maybe 10 more treatments in, we'll get to full closure or we'll get to a point that we can maybe put a graph or something on that wound. So we want to go 10 more times or we go, let's put a graph on it and get 10 more treatments in. So that skin to take. 
And then you mentioned sometime when we were communicating about multi-place and monoplace therapies. Will you talk about what those are? Sure. So there are actually different types of chambers and how they're classified. So you have class A, B, and C. A class A chamber is actually your multi-place chamber, meaning that you can put multiple patients in at one time. Class B is a monoplace chamber, means one patient at one time. And then a class C is actually used for animals. So there is equine therapy for hyperbarics. But the difference, again, with the multi-place is the number of patients you put in, but it also is how we pressurize the chamber. So a multi-place chamber being it's a very large steel tube, we pressurize that with air and then use a delivery device to put oxygen. So they'll wear a hood, I call it like a space helmet, and they put on a hood where we deliver the oxygen through a hood delivery. A monoplace, it's an acrylic tube. And so when they put the patient in, they can sit up, not completely, but they're more kind of laying down. And we compress that with 100% oxygen. And if needed, we can put air in there for a break where they can take a five, 10 minute break of no oxygen where they're breathing just regular air. Same in the multi-place if we need to give them an air break, take some time where they're not on oxygen. We can take that oxygen hood off, give them five minutes without the oxygen, and then back on and continue the treatment. But it really is how many people you can place in the chamber. The difference also in a multi-place environment is you have to have extra staff. So in a monoplace, I can have one technician that operates two to three chambers at a time. In a multi-place, I have a technician that's going to operate the chamber or drive it, as we used to say, and then another technician They can be a CHT, a nurse, whomever that's in the chamber with the patients to provide the actual patient care, making sure the hoods are on, off, and providing the care while they're in there. So it's just kind of a different environment. The nice thing about multi-place for patients that maybe have like pretty bad claustrophobia, a multi-place environment is really good. Most of your clinics kind of in your communities have monoplace chambers. That's where they run multi-place. You see more in your kind of larger tertiary medical centers, those that might have emergency programs and provide emergency hyperbarics for the emergency indications that we have, a lot of those will have a multi-place chamber that do research. You know, your academic facilities tend to have your multi-place. Okay. And is that common, Kristen, for patients like to need a few minute break in the midst of that treatment? Like you said that sometimes you take them off and just give them room air for a few minutes. Is that fairly common? So it is for certain indications. So it depends on how deep the depth of the pressure that we put them in. So we kind of talk in dive terms, you know, I talked about getting that sort of very technical. You had to understand dive medicine. So especially in the multi-place environment, we talk very much in scuba diving terms, feet of seawater, atmospheres of pressure. So a standard dive is at 2.0 absolute pressure ATAs. And then there are some treatment tables that will go to 2.5 ATA or even deeper to 3.0. And so the deeper you go or the more you pressurize that you need to have some less time on oxygen because you have a greater buildup of nitrogen in your system. And so you have to kind of offset it. Also, patients that have diabetes, the more pressure we put on them, the deeper they go. So if I do a 2.5 ATA in a patient with diabetes, their sugar is eaten up a lot faster. So if they come in and their glucose is only at like 120 that's going to be eaten up really fast and they have a chance to become hypoglycemic. If we give them that air break, we give them that five minutes without oxygen, it gives the body time to kind of reset and then we put them back on and then we finish it. So that's generally halfway through the treatment for doing 90 minutes at the, that we call it depth. At 45 minutes, we take them off the oxygen, 
give them five minutes of air, put them back on and do another 45 minutes of oxygen. It's indicated based on really the patient and what's going on with them. Okay. So there's a lot of skill in assessing those patients as the person with them during that procedure. Yes. And then you mentioned before that you had experience with emergency hyperbarics. So what kind of patients need that? And is that treatment course like the more chronic wound patients we've been talking about? Like, tell me how that goes. So that's a very different course of treatment. So when I started my hyperbaric journey, again, I worked in a, a large academic level one trauma center and we did had an emergency hyperbaric program. And those patients could be patients with carbon monoxide poisoning. So they come in, they've had carbon monoxide poisoning. We can put them in hyperbarics and actually it pushes that carboxyhemoglobin, that bad gas out of them very quickly. So it helps decrease any neurologic side effects. Scooters that get the bends, their treatment to cure the bends is hyperbarics. You can treat air gas embolisms necrotizing fasciitis. There's about five or six different things actually fail flaps and grafts. So a patient gets a skin graft and it starts to fail. It starts to turn. All of a sudden it's getting dusky in color. We would get calls from our plastic surgeons that, hey, my graft is turning a little dusky. That was an emergency for us. And we would immediately put them in the chamber. Those treatment tables are very different. So for like carbon monoxide, we take them to three ATA. So we take them deeper and we would treat them longer. So again, in a multi-place, we would do dive tables, so more like if we were scuba diving. So we would do what was known as a table six or a table seven for diving. So if you scuba dive, it's really the length of time that you're at a specific depth and how long you need to take with your breaks coming back up to sea level or surface. Because just like with if you're diving, when you're in hyperbarics, especially in that multi-place environment, because we compress with air, and not oxygen, you have a nitrogen buildup. And so your inside attendant has to be treated as if they were scuba diving. And so if I'm doing a deeper dive for a patient that's had carbon monoxide poisoning, so we're taking them to the equivalent of 60 feet below sea level, then I have to think what that would be like if I were looking at fish at 60 feet below the ocean and how that would work with stopping on my way back up. Because scuba diving, if you come up too fast, you get what's known as the bends, which is a nitrogen buildup in those air spaces, in those joint spaces. So that free air space fills up with nitrogen and you have to get those bubbles smaller again. So it's gas bubbles that build up. And so the same concept happens in hyperbarics. And we have to keep that in mind when we're treating emergency patients in a multi-place chamber. And so that's why we think in that manner. We can do those same emergencies in a monoplace chamber. Monoplace chambers can be set up for emergencies as well. You can put through through little ports, like tubing for ventilators, IVs. The same thing I can do inside of a multi-place chamber. It's a little different. You're kind of treating the patient from the outside and watching versus being inside doing kind of active care. Uh, the thing with the multi-place when you have emergencies, we had what we called kind of it was almost like a mini ICU on half of our chamber. And we could put a critical patient in there on a ventilator with drips and take care of them. The unique part about our clinic that I worked in because of doing emergency hyperbarics, all the nurses were ICU trained. So I always tell people it was a very unique clinic to work in. I said, you have ICU nurses that obviously already know everything when they get there. And so it was always a battle of the wits some days in that in clinic, but also when doing hyperbarics in an emergency, especially as a nurse inside of the chamber is you have to be able to treat that patient and really be confident in what's going on. Because if I'm at 60 feet, 
below sea level, or I'm not, I mean, are the pressurized to like I'm 60 feet. So I'm at three ATA of depth. I can't immediately come back up to surface or sea level because I have that nitrogen buildup in my system and I have to slowly come back up to make sure I off gas. And so if there's something that occurs to the patient and you have to abort your treatment, then you have the that your patient patient now has to be treated for whatever emergency is going on and now your inside tender becomes a patient as well because you have to show that they don't have the bends and so we had procedures for if something happened in the chamber and we had to quickly abort we would come up another nurse would take over patient care and take the patient out of the chamber and then we would immediately recompress the chamber back down the feet and allow that inside person to like slowly recompress as they needed to so we didn't get the bends. Wow, that's amazing. And what type of patient is the most common in your current practice that undergoes hyperbarics? In the wound healing and the daily kind of environment, we generally see diabetic foot wounds and radiation injuries. So those are the two most common that we tend to treat. And that's what you see most in your day-to-day wound care hyperbaric clinics. Okay. And do you think that it works better on one problem versus another? Like in your experience, is it better for the radiation patients versus the diabetics? Or is it really more patient-specific and the overall picture with the patient? It's very patient-specific. So for the radiation patients, because they have less that they have to do to also maintain healing, they just have to be there because it's an internal wound that they can't even see. As long as it's healing, they tend to do fine. The diabetic patient, the challenge you have is the patient and how compliant they want to be. And it comes down to, at the end of the day, we're getting to hyperbarics to heal that wound in your foot. We're in discussions of if this doesn't work, our next option is amputation. And that's where we don't want to go. Our goal is always limb salvage and limb preservation. And actually, for our clinic here, we're in the process of really kind of redesigning and putting in a more robust limb salvage program, working with our vascular team and our podiatry team, that the goal is we don't cut off the leg, that we treat the wounds and the patient and we utilize our hyperbarics and our wound center and our surgeons. So did we get them the blood flow they need? So calling our our friends on the vascular side and say, hey, I need you to open up the vessels for me the best you can, whatever vessels you can open up in that leg, so we can restore blood flow, we need to get in with our podiatrists and say, you know, we need a debridement or we need you to like clean that bone if they've already had some form of an amputation, maybe they've lost a toe. And so we need you to clean up that area in the toe surgically because we don't want to lose any more tissue. And so if we can get them in the chamber, then we're going to like salvage the most amount of tissue we can. So maybe they just lose a toe or two toes, hopefully no toes, but the goal is that we don't lose anything above or below that knee, that we keep the majority of it there, that we keep it to max a T-met so they can still have mobility and functionality. Because we know when you lose a limb, your mortality rate goes up immensely. And so let's keep their legs on so we can keep them functioning and we decrease that mortality and we decrease those readmissions into the hospital. It saves much more money to a healthcare system and the healthcare industry if we can save the limb versus if we cut it off. And then you mentioned how the physiology is with the diabetic about opening up those tiny vessels. What does the hyperbaric do to the radiated tissue? Is that the same thing, Kristen, or does that work in a different way? Really what it's doing is getting oxygen down to that really small area and creating that angiogenesis. So it creates new cell growth as well because it's able to get in that 
area that we couldn't get into in a traditional way. There's radiation injuries you really still can't even see. Even if they go in and do a cystoscopy, you can say, yes, the bladder wall looks like it's been radiated. Like you're just going to see like the radiation, but there's nothing you can do to like do anything else. Like what are you going to put on that from an internal standpoint? And so that's where this creates new cell growth and allows that damaged tissue to then heal because it's getting, again, that oxygen into a place that you can't do just walking around. You need that pressure to make that free airspace smaller and that oxygen to be able to freely get to it. Right. That makes sense. And then are there contraindications for this? There are. There's more relative contraindications than absolute contraindications. The only absolute contraindication is a pneumothorax. So if you have a pneumothorax, we cannot treat you because the fact that, again, when we're pressurizing and everything gets smaller, that's fine. We're not going to see anything really happen. You're going to be fine. But it's when we're repressurizing and that we're reinflating, it can potentially get larger and expand that pneumothorax as it's as we're coming back up. We're re-expanding all the air. So we're putting more air in there and now it's getting bigger again so we can expand that pneumothorax. So we can't, that's our absolute contraindication, but the relative contraindications are sinus congestion, ear problems. So if you have sinus congestion, you can't equalize your ears. So just like when you're flying in an airplane and you're landing and your ears start to fill up, you have to clear them. Same thing when you're in the hyperbaric chamber and you're pressurizing, you have to clear your ears. All of that is airspace. And so that gets filled up. And if you are filled with not basically that pressure will build up in there and you can actually get what's called a sinus squeeze and you can crack your jaw bones or your facial bones if it gets too much pressure from it. So if you have a sinus congestion, if it's mild and we can clear it up with some Afrin or Sudafed, that's what we'll do. But if you're really congested, we tell you, please don't come in. Even when I worked multi-place for the staff, if we were congested, we weren't allowed to go in. We were like, I'm congested today. I got a cold. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm off the list. I can't go in the chamber. Those are kind of our contraindications. Pregnancy is a relative contraindication, not so much because of anything that we think would hurt the fetus, but we don't know. There's not enough evidence to say what could or could not happen. We're not going to do research on it. Obviously, doing research on pregnant individuals and fetuses is kind of frowned upon, but we don't know. Now, in the case of potentially carbon monoxide poisoning, we will do a risk-benefit and say, okay, is this going to be a benefit if we go ahead and treat and see what happens? But generally, we don't treat pregnant individuals for that reason because we don't know what's going to happen with the fetus, and so we, we don't want to take that risk. But really, on the whole, there's not a lot of contraindications. There's a couple of medications that if you've taken some chemotherapies that have some increased risk of hyperoxygen toxicity, if you take them, and so if you're taking them during hyperbarics, we can't allow you to do that. In a monoplace environment, different dressings that we may use for wound healing, we have to either remove or cover up before you go in because, again, oxygen, pressure, and potential for spark can create a, safe, create a fire. And so we have to watch what dressings we put in because, again, safety is our first thought when we go into the chamber. Okay. All right. And so what, if any, complications other than the sinus problems, which that sounds like that would be awful, are there other complications? Like if a patient's going to have a course of this, what complications, like somebody with a neuropathic ulcer, like what would the potential complications be, if any? 
So they can actually have a seizure related to hypoglycemia and oxygen toxicity. So what happens is if their blood sugar goes too low and getting the high flow amount of oxygen, they can actually have an oxygen-induced seizure. The way to stop it is to take the oxygen off. Of course, we would provide them sugar. But seizure is number one, but it's from oxygen toxicity, hypoglycemia. If they have a history of seizures, we have to know kind of what's going on with their medicine, make sure their medicine is at therapeutic level, because if it's not, again, it can elicit a seizure within the chamber. The sinus squeezes ear pain from not being able to equalize your ears. We watch more for oxygen-induced seizures are the biggest risk. You stop them with just turning the oxygen off. So in like a multi-place environment, if they start to have a seizure, they start to look like they're going to seize, we can take the oxygen off. It generally resolves immediately. In the mono place, we ask them if they haven't started actually seizing, but we start to see maybe some eye twitching or they're kind of staring in space. We'll ask them to put their air mask on right away. Like if they are still cognizant enough for us to go, hey, Mr. Jones, put your air mask on. We get their air mask on them. And so that way they're breathing air and no longer the oxygen. And again, we can reverse that from happening. If they happen to seize, we have to kind of take our time coming up and only repressurize when they're not actively seizing, just because of the changes again with the pressure and what can happen as we're re-expanding that air in your lungs. Because if you're, you know, when you seize and it's stopping, and so you have to kind of wait, hold on, they've stopped. Okay, now we can start. They're really normal. Let's start coming up. They're seizing, we stop. And so it's very rare, but it can happen. We do always talk about it. Our other things that are risk, not to the patient, but in general, we always talk about the fire risk. Oxygen, obviously, is very flammable. You have to have a spark, but oxygen under pressure makes it even more flammable. So safety and safety with the oxygen is always our number one concern. So you cannot take any electronic devices into the chamber because they can create a spark. So hand warmers, things of that nature, none of that can go into the chamber. We can't take in, like, a lot of places like to have blanket warmers with warm blankets because they're nice and warm. You cannot have a blanket warmer with warm blankets in the chamber because they actually will create static, and that static will create a spark. And so then you can have a fire. So we're very safety conscious about what goes in and what goes into the chamber. In a mono place, because it's acrylic, we have to be very conscious of jewelry, and things of that. You don't want somebody wearing a ring so they can scratch that acrylic. We don't allow them to wear makeup in the chamber because makeup has petroleum bases in it. And again, that can create a spark. Again, you have to have something or you have to, that can create a fire. You have to have something to spark it, but we want to make sure there's nothing that we can help fuel that potential. And so no hair products, no makeup. So we're very, very safety conscious. It's hard. When I started in it, cell phones they were more of a flip phone so people didn't live on their phone and play video games on their phone and everything and they would put it in a locker just fine there was no like hey put your phone up now they're like well, what am I supposed to do while I'm in there and I was like well you can watch tv and they're like watch tv I was like I know it's crazy it sounds very <laughs> old-fashioned like a tv <laughs> luckily most of our patients are still older so they're good about it but our younger diabetics are the ones that are like what am I supposed to do that sounds really boring I'm like yeah that's the biggest side effect is boredom and that's what's going to happen. And so in mono place, it's nice. All of them are always wired with TVs and they have individual sound into each. So you don't have to watch whatever everybody else is watching. The problem in a multi-place, we generally don't do TVs because then you have to figure out what show's going to be on the TV and everybody <laughs> has to agree. Right. So we tell them to bring in books because you can't do newspapers because the paper that newspapers are printed on is not a good solid newspaper. It's a good fuel source. So you can read a book. You can take a nap. 
we would have people play cards. They would take cards in and they could play cards while they were in there because they couldn't take anything else in. You know, you can't take a Kindle in because it can have a spark. So what's the biggest like problem with hyperbarics? It's boring when you're in there. Like it's two hours of nothing. Most people get a good nap when they go into hyperbarics. Emergency dives being even longer. You know, the patient luckily is generally either intubated or asleep, but for the inside attendant, that dive can last anywhere from three to six hours. And that's a long time sitting in a steel tube with not a lot to do, just kind of staring at a patient. Right. Especially if the patient's asleep, you can't even talk to them. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Huh. yeah. You can talk to your outside attendant. And right. Right. If you guys can come up with a good conversation for the next six hours. <laughs> that's funny. And then there used to be those chambers where like somebody would have their lower leg in. Is that still a thing? I remember going to conferences probably a few years ago now, and you would see these like little boxy looking things that were for supposedly hyperbarics. Do they even exist anymore? They do exist, but that is not hyperbaric. So the true definition of hyperbarics is your full body has to be in and compressed the entire body. So just putting your leg in there is not going to do anything for you. Whatever you pay that doctor to put your leg in there is just a waste of money. Insurance isn't going to pay for it. You're going to end up paying for that out of your pocket anyway. I always tell people if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true with hyperbarics. There's a lot of people out there that will try to sell it as something different. And it's a shame because hyperbarics is a very good modality for wound healing and because of just like in any industry and healthcare has it across, I mean, all of our industry with however people want to look at things, they go, well, we can just do this and just put your leg in there. That's hyperbarics, but it's really not. And they'll take people's money for that. And I hate to see that because it gives our industry a really bad name because we have, I mean, we can do great work if people understood what we did. And so sometimes people think it's voodoo medicine. My sister's father-in-law is a retired physician. He used to joke with me that I did voodoo medicine until I really sat there and talked about it with him one day. I was like, but do you understand what it is, Martin? And when we finally like kind of sat and talked about it, he's like, oh, I guess I really didn't know what it was. But understanding what we do, they're still out there, but it's definitely not hyperbaric. So it's not going to heal you. Okay. All right. And then you talked about Medicare coverage a little bit earlier on. And then what about like private insurers or like the state, like Medicaid type plans? Are there any like general things that you see in terms of coverage for people for this therapy? So generally all of our commercial payers will cover it based on what the 16 indications are from UHMS. They follow Medicare guidelines. Whatever Medicare says that they're going to cover, commercial payers do. Occasionally, a commercial payer will pay for a little more here and there occasionally, but not very often. Medicaid, it's case by case, just like anything with Medicaid. So our state, Georgia, is one of the few Medicaids that does cover it. Not every state Medicaid does. Texas was a little harder. We actually didn't get a lot of approval through Texas Medicaid. I do get more approval through Georgia Medicaid. But we have to do a lot of justification before they'll pay for it. And again, we always justify that the goal is to keep them from losing the limb. And that's going to save Medicaid a lot of money if we don't cut off their leg. Right. And then you said earlier that you evaluate the treatment partially through. And so do you use wound measurements or what are your like measurables that you use when you have to decide if it's besides the patient participation, like when you have to decide whether this is effective for the person and you're going to continue it or like do the insurers require specific things? 
They do. So they require, like, for diabetics, they require wound measurements. They ask us for hemoglobin A1Cs to make sure that the diabetes is still being managed. If they see that the diabetes is still not managed, then they're going to say, well, this is not going to stay long term. We're going to be right back to where we were a few months ago. So we do have to provide a lot of evidence that says it's working or it's not working. And if it's not working, then we tell the patient it's not working right now. We're going to stop. Doesn't mean we can't ask for it again if things start to change. Again, all of those things have to align right with the patient as well. So with those diabetics, are they managing their glucose? Are they hopefully not smoking? Because if you smoke, that's not going to help your wound healing because of the uh, vasoconstriction that we have on the vessels. So our hospital here, actually, we have a very robust charity program. And when I took over our program, one of the things I did is our charity program is good about covering a lot of things for our patients in the community. Nobody would ever ask about hyperbarics. And I finally went to say, well, why don't we just ask them if they'll cover it? And they said, well, it's too expensive. And I said, it's a lot more expensive if they keep ending up back in the hospital. And so I emailed our charity team and I said, hey, what about looking at this? And as soon as I showed them that our doctor who runs it, the evidence in that, he's agreed to every one of them except two. And those two that he said no to were smokers. And he said, when they are completely off tobacco, then yes, but not until then. And luckily, insurance does a lot of the same things. Like, we'll cover it unless, and then when we show them, again, we have to send more stuff in or send ask for more treatments if we get audited by Medicare. So Medicare does how they pay, depends on your kind of intermediary group that the country's kind of divided into categories of, well, the LCDs, the locals. And some locals do pre, what they call pre-perspective. So prepayment, like as soon as you send them the information, if they say you've met all the criteria for hyperbarics, then they're going to pay. A lot of them have gone to what's called post-perspective payment. And so we can get pre-authorization. They said, sure, yeah, you can do it. Go ahead. And then later on, they'll audit us and say, we need to see the last 10 patients that you treated in hyperbarics. And we have to send them the documentation and they'll ask for that. Well, where was the sugars? Where was the measurements? We don't see improvement in healing. Like, And we have to send different Time frame. So they don't just ask for the whole thing. They'll say, we want to look from this day to this day. And then they'll ask me for like several weeks later. Okay. What about here now? And I have to send them different documentation. Georgia happens to be in a post perspective LCD. And so every few months I get hit in the audit. It's like jury duty. I get hit for the audits and they'll send me a list and say, we want documentation on these patients. And so we send them the documentation. I've had them send some back and say, we don't have enough where's this? And I'll, you know, go back and look and find it. My doctor is very detailed in his notes and that he is board certified in underwater and hyperbaric medicine. He's done his fellowship in it. So he makes sure that everything is in that record. So when we send it in that we're not going to get denied for treating them for hyperbarics. Wow. That's great. And what do patients ask you most commonly? Like if somebody's been evaluated for it, what are the most common questions you get from the patient end? They ask if they're going to feel anything, does it hurt, what to expect, and, and yeah, that's when I tell them, you know, it doesn't hurt. We talk about clearing your ears, you know, I always reference it like flying in an airplane, and what to expect, I just say it's, I just expect to watch bad daytime TV or take a nap, but it's a time commitment too, and that's really what we preface to our patients, like what to expect is a time commitment, so are you willing to do five days a week for at least the next six weeks. So are you willing to come five days a week for the next six weeks to treat this wound? And if the answer is no, then we really say you need to evaluate what you want done. Like 
how aggressive or, or not aggressive do you want us to be for healing your wound? That's really what it comes down to. You can miss a treatment here and there, but if you only come once a week, then you're not getting the benefit of it because it has to kind of build on top of itself. And so that's why it's five days a week. Yes, we give you that two-day break. Back when it first started, they actually would do six to seven days a week. And then people realize that you could go a couple of days without it. You don't want to go weeks and weeks without it. You don't want to just come once a week. But if you can come five days a week, then you're going to see that benefit and you're going to see that healing really happen. So when they ask what to expect, I ask my doctor, ask, you know, what's your time commitment? Are you willing to do it? Are you willing to put in the work for to heal your wound? And then when they ask, does it hurt or that, you know, we show them, we take them over to the chamber and let them see what it looks like. Do you have any questions when you're looking at it? Because again, some people are going to see it and go, I don't think I can lay in that tube. Like I get claustrophobic. And then we can do a trial run. Say, hey, let's see, like, just try to get in it and see how you feel. If it's too much, we can try medicine or we can find them. Um, there happens to be a multi-place chamber in Atlanta. And so we can call that clinic and say, hey, we have a patient that's claustrophobic and can't do monoplace. Do you have space in your chamber in your week to treat this patient so they can get hyperbarics? They still want to do it. They just can't sit in the monoplace chamber. Wow. That's a nice option for those people that are claustrophobic. And then you started to talk about dressings that have to come off. Are there categories you could share with us that you like, they always have to come off? Like it would seem like a silver might have to. And what else? Silver dressings are okay. It's the petroleum-based dressing. So if they have like a petroleum gauze on there, we definitely can't use that one. Wound vax, we can put the foam and the tubing in there, but the machine can't go in there. So we have to take that machine off and put the keep the machine off for the, that two hours. So that's that two-hour window we're in where you're not getting therapy while you're in the getting hyperbarics um, because we can't put your machine in the chamber with you because it's an electronic device. It can create that spark. So total contact casts, we actually have to wait till they're dry and they have to be dry for about two hours before we can put them in just based on the material that it's made with. We tend to cover it with towels anyway. All of our linen that goes in there has to be hundred percent cotton. There can't be any mixes in there. So if there's something that has to, we can cover it with gauze or something. But our petroleum dressings, we cannot put in whatsoever. Wound vac, we have to take the machine off. If it's something else, we cover it with like a towel or a blanket. And we make sure there's that 100% cotton covering whatever's on there. So if they have a compression wrap on their leg, we'll cover that compression wrap with some towels or a blanket or a sheet before they go in. Just to make sure that the other materials don't affect the oxygen environment. And then how long before like the patient's going to see that their wound looks better? Like, is there a general number of treatments you would say that somebody's going to see a noticeable improvement in their wound? Or is that really individualized, Kristen? It's really individualized. The only thing that you see the immediate return on is going to be obviously your scuba divers with bends because the pain's going to go away. Carbon monoxide, because again, we can draw a lab and see that that's gone away. Flaps and grafts are probably the one we see the fastest results in. So if somebody has a failing flap or graft, we see the duskiness. Within 24 to 48 hours, we start to see it turning pink again. And that's how we know it's going to be okay. If we don't see that in 24 to 48 hours, then we're really concerned. If in 24 to 48 hours, it's still dark or it's getting darker, then we know that 
there's more going on and hyperbarics isn't going to help it at that point, we're going to call that surgeon back and say, you need to go back to the OR because this isn't working. But like a diabetic foot wound, the radiation, even the chronic osteos that we treat, we're not going to see something with that for a couple of weeks. And that's going to be small incremental changes that you see over time. Okay. So it's not like flipping a switch and all of a sudden you have this beautiful, healthy wound that's taken off. No, I wish it would. Yeah, for sure. Don't we all, right? And then you said if like somebody has an upper respiratory or sinus infection, they they can't go in. And then like, so say somebody's hospitalized for something and they miss some treatments. Do you just tack those on to the end of what your plan is or what happens with that type of situation? We just tack it on to the end. Again, with anything, we make sure with insurance coverage. So if it has an insurance coverage, like Medicaid will give us dates, start dates and end dates. And so say it's a Medicaid patient and they say you can do 30 treatments by October 15th and they end up in the hospital, then we'll call Medicaid and say, hey, they were in the hospital from this day to this day. Can you extend their treatments by two weeks? We generally don't get no from that. We just have to call and let them know. We just tack that back on as long as there's a reason for them to come back. We actually just had a patient that is had radiation. It was not working for him. We've treated him about 50 treatments. We weren't seeing progress. He went in for cystoscopy and still had large blood clots. And so we told him this probably isn't going to work right now for you. We got to figure out what else is going on. And then, then maybe, but right now it's not. So he's been in the hospital off and on, but he won't return just because we know that the treatment wasn't working at the time. And what do you see coming in the future with this? Do you see changes or more types of indications? Or what's your sense since you work in this all the time? It's tough in wound care in general, but hyperbarics is for our reimbursement. So it is hard to continue to justify. Insurance doesn't like to pay anyway for anything. And so it gets very difficult because year after year, we have to justify that it works. And again, depending on what people think, they're like, it's just oxygen. It's like, I get it, but it really does have a healing effect. And wound, especially in the outpatient world, wound healing in general is, it's so hard to get people to understand the need for it or the reimbursement for it. It's very expensive. And that's what we keep hearing. Well, you guys take a lot of money. You take a lot of money. And it's like, it's no more than other industries or other areas of healthcare taking. It's just ours looks worse because our patients are chronic. They're there for a long time. We hear off and on that what they're going to change for us. I think that the one thing we see coming down the road that's been talked about off and on, and I agree with that, is really taking the specialty and making sure that who's providing the hyperbarics are those trained specialists. To be a hyperbaric physician, a lot of the wound care centers are are owned by third-party companies, and so they will go in hire doctors that work at the hospital. They could be surgeons or family practice, internal medicine, and and they'll do what I call rental time. And they'll go for four hours a week and run a clinic. And while they're there, they'll oversee hyperbarics. They can take the same 40-hour course that I took and then oversee hyperbaric oxygen. What I see happening, though, is that Medicare and the private insurers, just like they've done in other parts of medicine, say that you have to have more robust training, you have to be board certified, or you have to be board eligible at least, have that fellowship training, and really add more to the industry. And I think taking that 
then it's not just the 40-hour course that you take and now you can build for hyperbarics. That you have to understand really that dive medicine and why we're doing it. It's not just oxygen. There's more to it. Again, we talked about you have to know the safety parts of it and like what else is going on and having that full understanding. And, and I've been in both worlds of it where I've had the rental doctors, as I call them, and then my full-time engaged. This is what we do five days a week. I've trained in this and this is my specialty as a physician. And it's a huge difference, I think, on outcomes. I think your outcomes are different when the doctor's vested. Just like in any part of medicine, if the doctor's vested in it and that's their passion, then you're going to see the better outcomes. So I think that as we justify the need and the staying power for hyperbarics and and wound care in general, as an industry, we're going to have to push to say, we're going to have to have the vested, passionate physicians that want to be here, not just, I'm here four hours on Thursday. And not that they don't do a good job, and I say that they do, but I think you see a difference in your outcomes on the person that is here all the time. Yeah. So what do you like best about caring for this patient population? You've been doing it for a while and you know tons. So what's the best part of it for you? Honestly, watching those that come in, barely able to walk, about to lose their foot or something's going on with them and and they walking out on both feet and we've healed them. It's something that snap in them that said, wait, they are going to cut my foot off. Yeah, we're going to cut it off. Hey, here's the deal. It's going away if we don't do something different. And that patient that has that realization that we put them in there, the emergency part of it, and we don't do emergencies here. We've talked about my new physician. We've talked about eventually moving that way and starting an emergency program up here because there's very few in the country. But in the emergency part, I will tell you that those patients, especially like the carbon monoxide poisonings, if they came in and they were intubated when they got there and we get them still in time, they still were neurologically intact. And then you call and check on them a day later in the ICU and they're like, oh yeah, we excavated them, they're talking. It's like, that's awesome. They were in a house fire and we barely survived and look, look what happened. It's good to see that the failing flaps that come in and they're black and dusky and you're like, that doesn't look good. And then a couple of days later, like, hey, we're, it's salvageable, we're going to save that. But just watching the patients realize that it is getting better. Wound care patients are chronic, especially in the outpatient setting, sometimes where they're the only thing they see once a week or once a month. But to watch them change that mindset of this is never going to get better to look, it actually is improving. It helps them. I'm an ICU nurse by original training. That's what I started at. I wanted to actually be a life flight nurse, but I don't like to fly. I found that out very young as a nurse that the helicopter scared me. And I'm not going to be a good flight nurse if I don't want to be in the aircraft. So I always thought I would stay in the ICU or the ER, and everybody thought I would. And I went to wound care. And again, I trained with Dr. Caroline Fife, who, again, she's one of the pioneers in hyperbarics and wound care. And I don't know if it was her passion that like wore off on me or just the fact that once I kind of saw what happened, it was as rewarding as seeing a patient leave your ICU and go to the floor and go home to watch them finally heal and leave and hopefully not come back because they didn't do what they were supposed to do later. When they healed and they finally left and they came in and they were you know, in a bad mood and not nice to be around. And then by the time they left, they smiled and they liked you and they saw that it could get better. Right. They had hope right after. They had hope when they left. I joke uh, years ago when I started, we had a little lady was probably 80, about 80 and like two old men that were in their late 60s, early 70s. And those little old men could like they had their canes and they were curmudgeons and grumpy. And this 
old lady had had like three different types of cancer. I mean, been run through the ringer and she would like walk tall and stand up and walk. And the two old men would kind of like limp past my desk as they were limping past my desk. I'd sit there and I go, she's 80. And I would just keep doing whatever I was doing. And the next day they'd walk past and I go, she's 80. And they just <laughs> glare at me and I'd laugh. <laughs> and they and I would say it every day. And then finally you started to see those two. They stand up more and they were walking more. And the one got rid of his cane. And his daughter came up to me and goes, What do you say to my dad every day? Because he doesn't use his cane anymore. I go, Oh, you see that little lady over there? She goes, Yeah, I go, Well, she's 80 and she's been through the ringer. And I said, So every time your dad and the other guy would walk past my desk, I would laugh and I would say, She's 80. And I would just keep <laughs> writing and laugh. And I said, I think I made them mad or something. Or they were like, I'm not going to be shown up by this 80-year-old lady. So they started walking taller and walking better. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> like, it's amazing. She goes, but I just laugh. She goes, because I see you sitting there and then you giggle. And I was like, yeah, I just tell them when they walk by. She's 80. <laughs> That's funny. So do you have any frustrations in your job? It sounds like the justification for this therapy is very challenging, but maybe that's not a frustration. Tell me if you have any frustrations. Being in wound care in, in any hospital, it seems like we're not the cardiac and neuro and surgery and trauma. They're the glamorous ones. My doc used to say trauma sexy and then we have wound care. And <laughs> she was absolutely right. I think the hard part for me, and especially now being in leadership, is trying to take my passion for what I do and make administration understand why it's so important. And that no, I don't bring in OR kind of money. I don't bring in neuro kind of money by any means. I don't bring in that kind of money, but I can save an organization money if you invest just a little bit in my in my group. Like in my department, it'd be it an outpatient and even an inpatient, but an outpatient especially, if you just invest a little bit in us so people know that we exist and we have the right tools we need for the clinics and just say, hey, you know, we have these clinics and they're great. That helps so much. And, and it's so hard to get. They know when we're there, when they need us. And then when we're, they don't need us, they forget we exist. And I think that sometimes that frustration is like, we are here and we provide a really great service. And I know it's not a glamorous service and everybody just thinks of us as the pressure ulcer people, but we do so much more than pressure ulcers. I say that for the years I've been doing this, I'm like, I do more than pressure ulcers. I promise. Like there's so much more to what we do. And there's such an impact we have on people that you don't realize we have. We actually are kind of cool if you see what we do. Right. All right. And what else is important that I should have asked you or that we didn't get to talk about? You taught me so much today. I really appreciate it. I think we've covered really the big gist of hyperbarics. I think it's an unknown modality that we have. And when people figure it out and know that it exists, it's, it's utilized as it should be. I said my program here, I came here just about six years ago from Houston, and my program here was very small, not very active. My medical director that I had unfortunately passed away. He was an older surgeon, but he passed away. And we spent some time talking about how we wanted to rebrand and regrow the program. And I said, you know, I want to look for what I had, similar to what I had in Texas, and I want to have a full-time physician that's bought into hyperbarics and we did a huge recruitment to find somebody and you know we've really grown our program and again we're pushing for that limb salvage and how do we keep 
people understanding that the modality to us will save legs, save lives, help patients, help our community. We have a huge diabetic population here in Gainesville, huge diabetic population. I mean, I can probably go to Walmart and just pass my card out and get it to the business. Oh, dear. <laughs> but I think across the nation, we have a huge diabetic population. So sure do. Mm-hmm. making people understand that like, we regrew this program, that the program was here to be advanced modalities to save patients' legs and limbs and make their wounds better so they didn't have to live with this forever. We're not going to heal everybody. We know that. But can we make them better than they were when they got to us? Well, thank you for joining me today. And thank you for teaching me everything I wanted to know. And I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. <laughs>